Welcome to Australian Design Radio, to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn, and with me is Matt Leach. Hey, Matt. Hello. So uh, we were lucky enough in this episode to sit down with Nick Gower, who is one of the, um, what would you call him, the creative director founder? He changes his title every time, so but definitely a founder or founder, director. A mentally friendly, yeah. um, along with John and Ben. Um, so, and we basically sat down and we talked about a, a whole range of things. Um, I think one of the things I really enjoyed was the whole studio culture. Yeah. We actually recorded in their beautiful space, mm. um, gigantic kind of heritage, which, which you said 1920s, I think. I went with 1920s. I, I think I'm, that's about right. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, lead, lead line ceilings and, you know, very um, gorgeous sort of spot. And we talked a lot about why that was important for their culture, um, yeah. both for the clients and for their staff. Did spoke about the environment in the environment, which was good. And they talked a lot about, um, well, Nick talked a lot about kind of following your own compass and investing in yourself, I think, in terms yep. of business. So let's jump straight into it. Okay, here we go. Okay. So when I told someone that I was coming to have a discussion with you tonight, they told me that every time they've seen you talk, you twirl a MacBook Air on your finger like it's a yeah that kills me (laughs) yeah and they said they can't pay attention to what you're saying because they're so worried that you're going to drop it but you've never dropped it I've never dropped it never (laughs) dropped it once yeah so is this is this a thing for you is this yeah it's um I'm very fidgety I like have like a real fidgeting problem I was doing I was in workshops all week this week eight hours a day with clients and um spending like a good two hours a day spinning my MacBook on my fingers this is a macbook air yeah it's an air yeah it's It's not like an imac no no it's not an imac (laughs) yeah one of those massive 20 27 inch (laughs) no i learned it at school actually it was from um uh like the actually the bigger and heavier the object the easier it is the easiest thing is like a a lunch tray right yeah and like you learn to spin it and and then then went to maths books because obviously there's nothing else to do in maths class other than spin the textbook on your finger <laughs> yeah. and then obviously starting when I, our first laptops were obviously too big but more recently in that last couple of years right. they've got a bit smaller and obviously now we've we've reached peak technology <laughs> to the <laughs> point where technology's <laughs> finally caught up and I can spin it's light enough to spin so on my the, finger the weight and the balance of everything it's just perfect yeah. yeah like and obviously it's an apple so it's you know perfectly balanced <laughs> You can open it up and do maths on it. Yeah. Well, exactly. I didn't. I don't need to know the maths. It's got a calculator on it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, the one of the things I wanted to ask you was just. I mean, how mentally friendly? How how old is it now? Uh, Two thousand and four. We left Billy Blue in December or whenever like graduation is. So, ten years in. But you you had it going in. Yeah, yeah. School as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, we were doing... John and I were doing work together. Um, MF, like, the name Mentally Friendly came from an assignment at Billy Blue um, where we had to, like, brand ourselves, make business cards and stuff like that. Really? Yeah. We still, I've still got some of those business cards at my parents' house. Um, <laughs> and um, so, yeah, we were doing... But we are mainly... Yeah, it wasn't, like, that organised, obviously. We are basically freelancing, trying to save the money just to like get started and buy yeah. like some computers and mm. you know what have you bits and pieces Pantone books and all that awesome stuff that you buy when you're a designer which we don't yeah that's weird isn't it I have a Pantone book on my desk right now 
The, yeah, you do power, but I was thinking more the stock photography books. Oh my God. That- I, I used to do, my uncle was a creative director and I used to do a lot of work experience with him. Yeah. And a lot of it, I just, you just sent me on a, on a magical journey for a second there. <laughs> a lot of it was spent circling, like se- yeah. seeing a brief, you know, like woman, you know, in car and yeah. just flipping through stock photography books, circling things or writing, probably actually writing down like some kind of barcode or number yeah. Yeah. for like three days in a row I would do that. Really? I, and then what do you do when you have that? And then book? like the art director would eventually look through your shortlist. Right. I guess. Choose choose one that they, they liked and yeah. then, then order it from the stock company. Yeah, but they always like buy facts or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Probably. Though they didn't want to flip through like a thousand page pages of okay. tiny little images. Right. So you're just shortlisting it. Yeah. And I, I, I remember being as a junior having to go into the stock book library and and look for ones that were slightly dated. Sort of thing, so I'd have to go through and like, oh, yeah, that one's more stuck in the eighties, so that's that's not needed anymore. Oh, I had totally <coughs> forgotten about that. Yeah, cool. We don't have to worry about that anymore at all. But I guess what what became quite apparent to me, and from an outside looking in, and what you guys are doing, was you were able to see some stuff on the horizon that maybe other people didn't see quite as quickly, mm. especially with digital. Mm. Yeah, was that, was that a conscious decision, or was that something you fell into, or? Yeah, I, oh, I don't know if we could see it, that no one else could see or anything like that. But I think um, we, you know, our choice to move from like graphic design to um, to kind of like more web design, I guess they're probably similar things as you guys spoke about with Chris. But like, you know, making that change is very much about like what's the best tool for the job for us. Right. You know, like we work for the project. We don't call ourselves graphic designers or web designers or anything like that. We're just like just come to work you know we're just designers I guess and um, you know the project was always just the brief from the client the problem that they gave us and they were typically like branding projects to begin with you know because that was like our what we'd been trained in but really quickly it became actually you know a website is going to you know add to that you know maybe not it's just a website certainly not in the beginning but um, it's going to add to that to, to create this online presence and then the online presence became like more of a focus for us because you know we really enjoyed it i think also if i'm being totally honest there's probably a little bit of a like when we're 21 trying to get started getting a brief um particularly then when it was also nascent you know so new Mm. um it was probably there was a bit of a whiz kid thing where they would trust you as a 21 22 year old like a brand would trust you with like a digital project where perhaps they didn't trust us as much with like rebranding their business right. okay so yeah I think so we, we did there was probably a little bit of that to be honest and so that that was your niche so you just you played it to the max yeah but we it also became for us like a really value, valuable kind of portion of um, or you know tool in, in the mix to solve these kind of brand problems um, you know in terms of communicating difference between brands and mm-hmm. you know trying to establish what a brand is and what it looks like and then you know, we very quickly kind of started saying stuff like, and I know like we didn't invent this or anything, but saying stuff like experience is brand as well, not just yeah. logos are brand, you know? And I think that we, I don't think we were the first people at all to um, to like understand that or to, to start chasing that. But I think that we were just in a really good position to like capitalize on it um, and to, and we had nothing to lose, right? We were right, because I guess that's what I'm interested in. Like, why, why were you in a better position than some of the people who were probably more established and more... I think that's why. Because we weren't established, we had nothing to lose. Right. You know? 
um, we were trying to find a space for ourselves where we could, um, you know, add value, work on the projects we wanted to work on, solve problems, you know, um, get paid, but also, you know, above all, solve the problems. Mm. And, you know, yeah. So um, I think because we had nothing to lose, uh, we were able to just jump on that opportunity. Um, we, I, I actually, my uncle who we were just talking about, his creative director, I remember going to him on one occasion and saying, hey, we feel like we're at this bit of like this tipping point, like digital's this thing that we're not really trained in, yeah. but we really f- were feeling it. You know, our training was, uh, went as far as like a little bit of flash animation or whatever. Yeah, yeah. it was very print-based. Yeah, very print-based. Um, but, you know, I've always thought that I was going to be like a more advertising or graphic design-based designer and, mm. you know, like, what should we do? Like, you know, do we... And he's like, just do the thing that, you know, solves the problem the best. Because he didn't, you know, it wasn't his, like, he, he's a very traditional creative director. But, but then even, I guess, at, definitely, like, go back 10 years ago, you would have had clients coming to you that had no idea about what what was available digitally, mm. I guess. And so it would have been a fair bit of work for you to know what, what was available so you could advise them, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and... Yeah, no, that's exactly right. It's a lot of work, but it was. It's also exciting. I mean, like we don't, we certainly don't see, um, you know, complexity as scary. Yeah, you know, see it as opportunity. But it has to. We the hard part is finding out and trying to be genuine about what's going to work versus what's a fad. Right. And I think that's the key um, because digital is like a big shiny thing that everyone's really excited about all the time. Yeah, you know, whether it's right now with. You know, um, UX, UX. Yeah, with like UX, for instance, or if it's, um, you know, 10 years ago with flash banners, yeah. you know, there's always something, and that's the whole principle behind Moore's Law. It's always, you know, where there'll always be that thing that's exciting and new, which is why people are drawn to it. And it's about like, you know, sifting through that and, and, and trying to find something that will be useful in the, you know, in, in trying to solve the problems that you've got in front of you versus, you know, turning it into a, like a PR tool or something like that where we're doing like stunts, which, you know, we've obviously done our fair share of as well in terms of trying to do well first of this or whatever. Mm. But it's certainly, it's not something that we, it's something that we actively try and avoid. You know, we like to kind of think that often for technology to be really useful, it needs to be a bit boring. Mm-hmm. You know, it, the most exciting things aren't really that useful until we've all gotten over the shininess of them and we've seen you just touch your wrist like you're touching an apple watch (laughs) yeah i don't know if that was intentional yeah i don't know it wasn't intentional but yeah i was thinking that was what was going through my mind because i'm not saying that um apple watches aren't useful i i've i've just tapped up like touch one for the first time in the last few days type thing but i don't know if they're useful and i want to discover that for myself i want to like wear it and try it out um you know, and then if, if there is something that we can do that's really, you know, useful, that will add value, like we'll, we'll do it, you know, we'll mm-hmm. invest in whatever we need to, we'll spend whatever it takes, we'll learn whatever it takes. But, you know, we want to first understand from a client's perspective, is it useful? As an object, is it useful? How do we make those two things come together? Obviously, it's probably if it is useful, it's useful to the right client, finding that right brief or that right situation to use it. As mm-hmm. you go back to what you said before, yeah, finding what is useful is the core of, I guess, what we do. Yeah. Is there anything that you've backed that you thought was going to be useful and it's just turned out not to be? I'm sure. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, all the time probably to certain degrees. Like the way we work is that with all our clients, um, we'll try, if they've got, 
like a, a budget of a hundred, you know, the typical way to deal with that budget is to, you know, pitch them something that costs like a hundred and end up spending 110 on it, right? Of whatever units you're talking. Yeah. Um, that's like the traditional agency model. The way we would much prefer to work, and I know this sounds like a sales spiel, but is to like take a budget of 100 and cut it into five um, and try and launch something for 20 um, and see if it works. So we can still be adventurous, but also be held accountable. Yeah. Like I'm happy to be held accountable on a bit of a punt on 20% of the budget. Um, and then, you know, only do things that are measurable and replicable, mm-hmm. you know, um, so that we can have another swipe at it or build on it if it's not like an event based like thing, if it's like an ongoing product, which is most of what we do, you know, try and get, you know, that, that beautiful word MVP or, um, minimum viable product, try and get that, the idea MVP out there and back it to the, to that degree and if you kind of get some positive results add a bit more getting more positive results add a bit more mm-hmm. so yeah we often kind of think that's that that's going to be useful and it doesn't turn out to be we've also got the advantage of having several of our own products and and businesses to um you know test things on and we stuff up on that stuff all the time obviously yeah okay so and then is that almost like a great testing ground to yeah yeah we have we've got as you know um Grand Social, which we started in 2008, online store, massive multi-vendor platform, you know, hundreds of brands, tens of thousands of um, kind of customers and, and sales. And we've tried all sorts of crazy stuff, you know, from with them from opening a physical store, which yeah. I was pretty sure was going to work for a while there. <laughs> it obviously didn't or it doesn't it no longer exists so it, it sort of certainly, certainly this didn't. is a gorgeous store though yeah it was beautiful I was very I am still very very proud of that whole project but um, you know it, it, was, it didn't become the thing that you know we thought it might but we also learned a lot about a lot of other things I still think incidentally that um, like cross-platform retail is the only way to go forward really okay. yeah like bricks and mortar as well as um, online but probably not at it's like such a small scale, I guess. When, when they talk about that, because I've heard a lot of people talk about that, but they also talk about that you, you shouldn't expect to sell anything in the bricks and mortar. Yeah, well, I, I think that's probably true. And I also think, like, not that we didn't do this. We, our, um, in, our experience in, a, in Grand Social Store was a very analog experience. It was very, like, in-store experience, focused on, you know, getting the products in there, the, the Australian products that we were pushing, getting them in there and, you know, having people go and touch them and feel them. We didn't, even though we have like a massive design dev resource, we had no iPad, like crazy iPad thing. We had no like virtual change room. We had none yeah. of that stuff, right? Because the whole purpose was that if I wanted that experience, I'd go online and I'd do it there. Mm-hmm. Like don't like wait till I get in store because I'm actually looking for some human interaction and to use my hands and to... Which, I mean, to... And then cram like an iPad in front of me. Yeah, but, but that's what the Apple store does though. I mean, because when, when you go in, it's kind of like you are using their... their but that's their that's online store. Yeah. yeah, but you but you are getting the human interaction as well, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. Like they are selling the iPad, so I guess you are getting that yeah, experience yeah. to a degree. But I wouldn't say... <laughs> you can have it on shirts and stuff. Like, <laughs> I don't know that they necessarily... Like they obviously do very well, but I don't know that they necessarily do everything perfectly either so of course yeah yeah Yeah, but it's interesting and and so the reason you didn't keep it going is just because well i mean the official reason is that we moved premises and it was like finding a a design studio slash um 
you know, retail front mm-hmm. is actually quite difficult in Sydney. Um, <laughs> so that's the, that was the actual thing that ended it. But also, you know, financially, it's it's tough. Like retail's tough, and also, um, you know, in terms of attention cost for us, you know, we have a, a type of staff we're really good at managing. You know, mm-hmm. like the design team, the dev team, strategy team, like an agency type person, like we get because that's who we are. But a retail person is a different beast altogether. Mm-hmm. So, like the management of that was also, you know, time consuming. But that, um, in terms of, you know, backing that. Um, whole idea we didn't just go and spend like a couple hundred grand opening a store um, on like day one we going back like two years before edition started we had the concept and we went and started doing pop-up stores yeah in 2007 we like just before we launched the grand social we we did our first pop-up store and then in 2008 we launched with the pop-up store and we did lots of pop-up stores after that and you know very much trying to build up a case for opening a store because we felt that that it went together so well with the Australian fashion brands that couldn't get online stores and couldn't get, you know, really prominent retail positioning either, you know, it would work really well together. So yeah, we approached it in the same way, but um, yeah, it it kind of ran its course, I guess. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Um, This is my interview. (laughs) Um, So what do you find, what do you find the biggest, I'm sure there are so many differences about these, but like, what do you find is the difference between like creating something like a product, like, um, like a, coming up with the idea of doing a fashion store and running it yourself kind of internally and then doing client work? So I think the core difference is that an agency, well, an, a business owner wakes up in the morning and, and they're in the shower and they're like washing their hair and they're thinking about their business. Right. And an agency person hopefully is if they're like working on one project at a time or a couple of projects at a time, but Mm. are essentially usually guns for hire, right? You know, there's a, you're paying for their attention, Mm. um, for a certain amount of time. They're charging you by the hour and there's like a value basing discussion to be had around this as well. But the real, like the real juice in, in, in starting and running and, and creating a successful business is understanding all the elements of it. An outsourcing part of that business, you know, whether that be the creative or the product itself, which is where it gets really dangerous online, etc., becomes tough if you don't understand all the elements, particularly in that first, as you said, like running phase, like the, the smaller kind of startup and, you know, early stages of a business before you have like a huge team. And in, I guess even if you do have a um, huge team, but I think that that's a real difference. Like it's the out of hours. I mean, I think that because of the way we've run Grand Social and before and uh, Tractor and other things that we've started and, and been involved in the running of, because of because of those, we do treat, we I certainly do have that feeling about all the products that we create. Mm. You know, um, I, I don't necessarily, yeah, but that is obviously the big difference, isn't it, between running your own project internally mm. and. Um, and the client stuff. And I think what we're trying to really do, the biggest benefit that we get from the stuff that we do as MF for MF is um, hoping that some of that kind of like care and attention to detail and giving a shit rubs off onto the client projects and the way we approach those things. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, that, that is, we were talking a little bit before about this, I mean, this beautiful space. I mean, the first time I came here was last season when we, um, interviewed. Is it Julie? Julie. Yeah. Um, and 
and I was just really blown away with this space. And, and now coming here again, you've done so much more, and mm. it seems like you're doing more stuff all the time. Yeah. And we were having, I was asking you about it before, and you were sort of saying we, you're struggling or you're wrestling with the kind of idea mm. is it for the staff or is it for the clients? Mm. Yeah, again, like um, if you've got, uh, we, we went from like 300 square meters in um, Darlinghurst, Surrey Hills, uh, to like 600 and something here square meters. Um, and that was like a very, very intentional move. Like we had to move from our last place. Um, but we, we kind of, you know, with, for the available budget, we could either come out here to Redfern, which is the first, like we've always been in that like couple of block radius to our old studio. We could either get like a small ultra slick or 300 square meter type ultra slick, you know, top tier type office, um, in, on Foster street. Mm. Um, the place that we were looking at, for instance, is where the guardian is now. It's a beautiful, beautiful old building just next to frost. Um, or we can come out here and for a similar amount of money, like double the space. Yeah. And, um, and, and we made that deliberate decision because we wanted to invest in a space that enabled the processes that we were telling clients that we were implementing and that we were selling our staff in on, on being for, on, you know, that we were telling ourselves that we were, were doing. Um, you know, having lots and lots of wall space for project rooms and that isn't something that you can half commit to. You can't half commit to having a project room for a client. If, you, if, if that's their wall, if that's their space, yeah. you can't take it down. It needs to be up there for the life of the project. For having things like user testing labs, for having like breakout spaces that are actually usable and those sorts of things. So we needed the space. But then when it came to the fit out, it was like, do we go and smash like heaps of cash on the you know, like the lobby entrance type yeah. thing and try and, you know, get like a really slick architect to come and sell quality or help us sell to our clients quality and, you know, expense and all those things and do like a massive, I don't know, interactive digital wall or something like, like that. a premium kind of thing. Oh uh, yeah, go help premium, like go really, really premium. Or, or, or how do you approach it? You know, what do you do? Like, what's the brief? Um, we, should, we should probably explain a little bit what, well, the space is like, I guess, as well. So it's an old uh, theatre, yep. and and you literally come in, you go up um, sort of like bare bare wood stairs, like and into the reception area. So it's two stories. Must be like, do you know what year the building was made? Must be like nineteen twenties or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it's like almost heritage, but not, which yeah. is good. Yeah, and then upstairs you've got all. That's where all the design. Yeah, it's about. I don't know. I'm guessing about 300 square meters upstairs which is the actual studio space and that um that's kind of split roughly up into design and dev on one side and then strategy and um, product managers on the other side yeah. um, and then like a big kind of hall and um, breakout kind of area in 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 the middle where um that has like lots of empty tables and things like that yeah and i, I know that hall you're even using like it seems that there's the kind of post-its everywhere and it feels like that's very much a yeah. There's, there's working projects working on that as well. Yeah, well, typically, yeah, that's right. Typically, the planning goes on upstairs and the client work goes on downstairs, typically. Mm-hmm. So, like, the, the, the system cards you see upstairs or the post-it notes you see upstairs are, you know, us planning out how we're going to approach something and downstairs is actually more design-focused work. 
And, you know, obviously all it's like mandatory design agency needs to have post-it notes covering the walls. <laughs> um, so they don't mean anything? Yeah, no, they don't mean anything. It's, hey, it's, this is just a wallpaper. Yeah, it's a wallpaper, exactly. Um, but, you know, it is, as it is, I know with like Reactive and a bunch of other um, agencies, it's like actually core to the fundamental way we do business. Our clients, like we have a very specific system for how we go about this stuff and, and our clients are brought in on that. We have a very collaborative process. And, you know, we've been saying that for years and we've been trying to facilitate as best we could in the spaces that we had. But yeah, when we went and spent the money, we were allotting those budgets. We spent it not on, um, you know, expensive fittings because you won't find anything in this building that's really like unnecessarily expensive or even really expensive, even though there's a lot of stuff because it's big. It's all made to, it's all designed to make the designers and the other team members here feel comfortable in the space. You know, so that they feel like they can use it. They don't get that first page of the moleskin feeling. You know, like you right. don't, don't get afraid to mess it up. But this, I mean, you've done some really. I mean, downstairs. So then you go downstairs, yeah. just just on my virtual tour, <laughs> and you've got um, it looked like a kind of a project room. Yeah. And then you've got an actual user usability room. So yeah. And then you've got the the spy room. Yeah, the, the observation room. The yeah. observation room. I think room. they prefer the term observation <laughs> <Right>. room. <laughs> where, um, yeah, so one, one way mirror where you can literally watch what a user is doing with, with whatever they're the peep show. testing. Yeah, it's a peep show. Yeah, so there's there's four meeting rooms, or there's four rooms downstairs that we, that we use. And, you know, again, it's like, okay, well, when we're designing the space and we need to design it around the process and, and make the, the space a reflection of our process so that we don't have to have people saying, you need to be more collaborative. You know, yeah. it, it kind of, it can just happen yeah. because, you know, we've been easily facilitated. One of the things that we did was with the meeting rooms and, you know, I'm, again, this is not unique, but just the way that we went about it is we really tried to focus each of those four rooms around like a really specific task or, or kind of portion of work so that you know it does encourage people to use it they know when and how to use it so we've got like the forest room just so called because it's got like heaps of plants in it and stuff and that um that's what that's an audit room it's about coming together and looking at briefs and reading briefs and pulling apart briefs and pulling apart problems with clients in the room and that has a picnic table in it which is a bit of like a wanky design thing to do i guess but <laughs> the idea is that everyone like is disarmed like clients come and they don't get like fancy seats they yeah. like they're sitting on a little bench they have to like climb over a little bench and like yeah. sit with you um and cork boards all the way around all the walls and then um you know other than obviously the glass and the doors which you know encourages you know and you know a little pin man a guy who has like holding a little plate full of pins yeah. to like you know get stuff up and get stuff up get it up quickly yeah. allow you to move it around quickly and all those sorts of things then next to that, we have um, the user test room, which is like a quite a bare room. It's designed to be, um, you know, quite vanilla when necessary because we have a we have a you know it's primarily used for user testing. So we'll get subjects, people, I suppose you call them, yeah. um, <laughs> people to come in and um, and use a product or a, or a tool or a thing um, alongside like a facilitator who'd run through scripts or, or whatever. Um, and then another room that fits about kind of eighteen people. And sort of stepped um, with yeah, one-way glass or two-way mirror, or however you say that, yeah. um, between the two rooms, mm-hmm. so that they can observe what's going on. And um, uh, you know, that's obviously given those two rooms a really clear purpose. And then we have our last, the last room there, which is like a dreamer room, which again is probably nothing unique, but it's just set up like a with a big board t- table in the middle, lots of cork boards, some like 
cool artwork and colourful walls and, and roof and, and, and all sorts of stuff there to try and encourage people to go there and, like, I guess, relax. And also, that's where our, like, bigger meetings take place. So how is that different to the first room that you talked about, the uh, forest room? Well, it, it's different in that it's, like, a much more formal kind yeah. of uh, presentation space. You know, it's got, like, the TV on the wall and, and all those sorts of things. Um, it's just it's a much bigger room for more people I guess so when you say presentation do you, are you still doing a reveal no no we don't yet no we don't really do reveals like that's something really important like our process is three always three workshops for every single brief a, an audit um, a dreamer and a realist um, okay. which pretty much are what they sound like we have lots of different um, you know processes and, and different workshop tools and things we have a person dedicated to dreaming them up and implementing them here um, but in the dream sorry in the audit we again pull apart the brief or the problem or perhaps the existing product or whatever it is um, we look for incremental changes but also we basically try and understand what the problem is or mm-hmm. the, where we are then we have a dreamer kind of session or, or period depending on you know how long the um, engagement is or how big the problem is which is about more kind of revolutionary change moving from the audit sessions um, and that's like what if this thing wasn't the thing that it is now what if we didn't answer the brief in the way you've asked or um, what if we you know what if I guess um, and there's like series of tasks and stuff and that's what that dream room's for so it's like big groups of people collaborating around that we really need to have all the clients in on those meetings we need to have um, you know the people outside marketing so we'll have up to like 10 or 15 people kind of in those and then we have a realist session the last session and um, that'll often include user testing um, mm-hmm. and it'll definitely uh, include um, some really hard conversations about money and time and and resource and availability and on our side but also on the client side so you know uh, do they have anyone going on maternity leave do they have anyone new starting do they have anyone leaving um, do they have a big launch that they want to talk about? Are there any of those like logistical things that sometimes get forgotten? Yeah. Um, and so we always go those go, go go through that process, and those rooms are there to facilitate that in a really kind of genuine way. You invest so much in like your space and the environment, and obviously always considering the employees that you have. Yeah. But where do you find where do you find people? Like how do you how do you find people? People um, workable. Um, the. Uh, look, I don't actually know, to be honest. The The best people always just come, you know, they, well, the best people always just come to us through friends and, you know, we try and stay active in, in the industry, you know, in, in and, and in the industry is a bit of a weird word, I guess, but we try and stay active, you know, talk to the people that we've met and yeah. stay friends with all the people that, you know, we work with and stuff. And lots of ex-employees will recommend people, current employees, you know, we have an office in the UK and that seems to kind of attract a bunch of UK people. Um, to, the, to the Sydney office? Yeah, to the Sydney office, that's right. right. Yeah. Weirdly, we have, more, we have more English people working in Sydney than we do have in the, the UK office. And we have more, more Australians working in the UK office than we do. Yeah, English. right. You have like a little mentally friendly exchange program. Yeah, happening. it feels that way, yeah. <laughs> we have had a couple of people go back and forwards, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, talking about the, the London office, how was that as a brand new chapter? Because I was, I think I was in your studio when, when, when we kicked that when off. You were in the process of kicking that off. Yeah, it's well, it's been a ride. It's been definitely the most successful thing, other than MF Core 
I mean, it is still a core MF. It's exactly what we always do, I guess. That's why it's been a bit easier. But it's been the most naturally successful thing that we've done outside just our agency. Right. Um, you know, we've got great, great people working there. Rob, who's the um, like director there, is like a very old like friend of ours. Yeah. Um, who we trust absolutely, which has made it really yeah. like easy compared to how it could have been or how these things sometimes go. Um, they've done an amazing job. I think what's been nice and oh, like I've kind of a bit jealous of them in a way is that um, while it's obviously been very difficult, you know, for them because they don't have the support of a bigger team like we do here and mm. there's only one director there versus three here. Right. Um, they have really focused on, you know, they started off mobile only, so they've really focused on a few things and have, you know, that I think that's been really great to watch, like building a studio with, you know, a very clear and very, very specific goal in mind. Yeah. Um, whereas when we started, it was, we had a very specific goal in mind, but we weren't, we had to take on a lot of other work that we didn't necessarily really want to do on the way. Like we were doing flyers for, you know, for years yeah. after we considered digital our core um, offering just because we had to, mm. to you know, mm. pay bills and stuff. Mm. Um, so yeah, watching, watching that happen, they've got some amazing projects. They've done like work with The Guardian, launched a global app for fitness first um done all the digital for soho house like these are things that i'm really proud of that i wasn't even involved with yeah so, so yeah. How, how does that work do you because i know you used to work on the same projects together and yeah. i remember you telling me that it was it was great because when you guys were going to sleep they were working and then yeah that I mean, and we still do work together a lot it's it's interesting that I, on that particular day I said that that was great. It is. It's great in theory, um, and it's sometimes great in practice. But it's also exhausting. Right. You know, like it is possible for us to get like a full twenty-four hour process going, because as you say, as we go to sleep, like right now at seven, it's like just coming into that, like their day. Yeah. So if we do brief them in properly and accurately and give them everything they need, they can theoretically work all day. Often what happens, obviously, though, is that we miss something or they miss something. And like an hour in, it's yeah, like that they 11 o'clock and yeah. you're here and you're and getting a phone call. Yeah, you're getting phone yeah. calls, stuff like yeah, that. So or, or even worse, I've spent a whole day on that. On the wrong thing, the wrong yeah, thing which, yeah. which has happened, you know, in the past. That being said, they've done some really good work for Australian clients and, um, and um, it, yeah, it has been great. It's just exhausting sometimes, mm. yeah. So do you, do you tend to work on separate things now? I guess they Yeah, as, the, as their team has grown up, they're 20-something people now. Wow, okay. Yeah, 21 pe- people, I think, something like that. Um, so as their team has grown, there's less, like, need for them to rely on us and, and the same here. We've sort of... Um, you, we've got a lot of overlap in terms of skills. Uh, yeah, but they also, for social or monitoring of, like, you know, really basic-level monitoring of software... Um, from a server level, but you know, uh, but also from a community level with moderation and stuff like that, it's been super handy um, to have people awake at four o'clock in the morning so that we don't have to deal with like emergencies unless they are like genuine emergencies. Yeah. yeah. Is there anywhere else in the world that you're looking at next? Uh, well, I mean, like, it's not like a plan specifically, but. I think everyone loves the idea of New York. Mm. You know, it's not like something that we've like scoped out properly or anything, but while we're just talking off the record here. (laughs) Oh, we're we're definitely on the record. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I think like New York would be amazing. Um, But yeah, we've definitely got our hands full at the moment with 
Sydney and London. Like London's growing so quickly. Yeah. Um, and what we really want to do is do it properly and, you know, really bedded in. We don't want to be those guys that have like offices in 20 countries, but like yeah. they're mainly just two guys. Two often two people. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we want to like build it up and make sure they're self-sustaining and, and not push too hard because we have limited resources. So, yeah. um, you know, just make something really solid, I think. Yeah. Is, is in London what, is that what about Asia is that somewhere yeah so we spent a bunch of time last year I believe last year yeah in Shanghai um, traveling around got a couple of like really key clients there and like we were pretty close to pulling pulling the trigger on on Shanghai um, though like a bit of a weird anecdote but John Ben and I were all on a flight from Shanghai to Guangzhou um, like to go to another meeting basically and it's like an hour and a half flight it's like from Sydney to Melbourne type thing and we're in the air for like five hours and um, I'm doing the maths in my head yeah. <laughs> going like I don't know I wasn't 100% across this itinerary but this feels like it's longer than it should be it's just like 14 episodes of Arrested <laughs> Development what is going yeah on? what's going on and then obviously like the amount of the fear level has gone like for me so, sort of like quite high and then Ben is like, he seems all right. And then John just doesn't seem to care, right? <laughs> Did John know that he was in a plane? <laughs> <laughs> no, John was in the kitchen because uh, they, they obviously speak like very little English. And we we're on like a regional um, flight. Right. Um, he was trying to order beers and that was a struggle. So he went to the kitchen to get them himself. That's what he spent <laughs> most of the time. But anyway, then like there's lightning strikes, the whole thing. And then they make an announcement and they make it in like Mandarin and like I can't understand it and then everyone's screaming and wailing and we think we're going to crash and then they make an announcement in English which we can't hear because everyone's screaming and wailing right and then that went on for like a long time it was I don't know probably I can't remember now it's probably gone up an hour every time I've told this story but I'm going to go with eight hours in total (laughs) Um, and and I was like doing the math in my head like we are definitely going to run out of petrol like they don't put 10 hours worth of petrol on a one hour flight yeah so anyway, we eventually land, I open my phone to like, John doesn't usually let me use data in other countries, but he made an exception in this instance. <laughs> right. And I turn on the data and we're like in an, on an island off China, like just near Vietnam in the middle of nowhere, like a communist facility basically right. that we'd done like an emergency landing on because there was a really, really bad um, electrical storm. This right. is a very long story, by the way, I'm sorry. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's like an electrical storm, um, like all in the region. And then, so the next five days was just hell. We missed our meeting. Um, we were in this place, no one spoke English, which is, you know, something I already knew, obviously, mm-hmm. but it really hit home how how out of our depth we were. Yeah. Um, and even though for the, the plans for opening a studio there, we have local partners, we have existing business, we have people that we know um, who wanted to come on board and get involved. Basically, it kind of came down to us saying, do we want to spend like a third of our time dealing with stuff that's so far out of our control and comfort zone and, and set of abilities or do we want to focus on like building the clients that we've got in the regions that we can manage a bit more easily mm. and a little bit unlike us we kind of took the sensible decision there and went look let's just work on these same clients from Sydney and from London for now yeah um, though I think that and, and never all like all, all get on the same flight together yeah like, well no we're not no, no, no. learn anything from no, we, Holly or... no we had that conversation on the flight where like, if this goes down <laughs> on the flight yeah on the flight <laughs> we're talking about it like 
what happens if it's and then we all decided like it's best case scenario poor Rob he'd be left by himself but like I don't want to be the last one standing I'd prefer that we all went down together than you know be like turn up on Monday and be like oh yeah John and Ben were no, they're gone now I have, to do, I have to do it all myself yeah um, so yeah I mean typically in historically at that moment we've always gone oh okay, let's do it mm. but at this particular thing we're like don't have we probably don't have that exact um, that exact we don't have that thing that we had at the very beginning which is nothing to lose yeah you know, we do have quite a lot to lose so we try not to let that get in the way of any decisions but at this on this particular decision we were like sensible thing to do is kind of concentrate on what we've got going on well here and here mm. yeah that yeah, makes perfect sense so what's so what's next for for mentally friendly is there is there something on the horizon that you're really excited about that you yeah, every, itching to get. I mean, but this is always every time I talk to you, you're like, "Oh, have you heard about this?" And like, there's something that you're really. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, we're just really excited all the time about everything that we do. But um, does that get tiring? Yeah, it's exhausting. <laughs> um, it's exhausting. It obviously goes in waves, right? I think because there's three of us, we probably even each other out a little yeah. bit. You know, like when I'm really up, it kind of gives probably Ben or John uh, an opportunity to like you know, like relax a bit and go home on time a little while. And then, you know, when Ben's like really, really up and, you know, just has this thing that he's like dead set on getting done, like maybe that gives me an opportunity to catch my breath for a second. I think it Mm -hmm. kind of works a bit like that. But I think we're all equally as excited. Like this is on the wall here. You can see like plan for MF stuff. We do this a lot. Like, so this is for MF. Yeah. That's why it's in this room, not in the, um, in like the in the, in the client in the, room, right. in the client room yeah because you've got say, some great stuff up there I've got to say in the two and a half years that I was in your studio I don't think anybody and either of you three ever went on home on, on time, time. No. <laughs> unless you were sick yeah yeah dragged out the door yeah, yeah. well um, you know what we're really excited about at the moment though is and I, you were actually asking me like a related question earlier is about like a transition that digital agencies are making at the moment or probably have been making for a year or two or three or four I don't know um, into a much more consultative type um, advisor business mm. um, for their clients. Like as digital becomes taken more seriously, mm-hmm. um, as the budgets become a bigger part of the pie, um, as people start to lose faith in the digital anything and start to move towards something specific, like we actually need to make sure that we're spending our money in the right digital thing, not just let's yeah. apportion money to digital. The um, you know, places like Accenture and Deloitte and those sorts of guys have really, um, you know, started making inroads into businesses in terms of digital um, consulting. And yeah, we're purchasing and... Yeah, and yeah. purchasing and stuff like that. And, you know, making comments like in two years' time, no digital agencies will exist. So I heard this. So who, who said that? Yeah, I think like, look, I mean, I think what he was basically saying, like talking in the context of... Um, like consulting firms um, acquiring businesses like Fjord, like you know, Reactive and, yeah. and Soap and those types of businesses, and saying, um, you know, the reason for that is that they can put them in front of bigger clients. It's obviously, you know, true, I guess. Um, and the reason for that is that those clients are already working very closely with those like McKinsey type businesses on, you know, like how they're how their kind of workflow works, how they you yeah. know, how they buy their oranges, how they, you know, yeah. fill their stores, how they do their other things that they do, right? And they've been doing that for a long time. So why not ask those same people who understand their so their business so well what they should do with digital, what they should do with their web assets, how they should spend their money 
how they should build their products up because digital does overlap so massively with product now, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, so for us, like that's been un- unbelievably exciting, you know, getting the opportunity to um, be taken serious. It, I think as with it all, probably people who take digital seriously, that's what we've always done. You know, it's never been our job, but we've always taken it as a very kind of, you know, we've really taken that weight of, we need to make sure that we're not doing something stupid here. If we're gonna take a couple a couple hundred grand off someone, we need to make sure that it got, it's going towards something that could conceivably work, mm. you know? Um, there's lots of times, particularly in the past, where people, you know, they understood risk and, and stuff and they were like, well, let's, let's invest in innovation. Let's try something new. And if it doesn't work perfectly, then at least we've learned something. And I think that's fine as well. But ultimately, you know, for every dollar you spend, you want more than a dollar returned yeah. at <clears throat> some stage. And that's the way we've always approached it. So we spend a lot of time in workshops with people outside of marketing, you know, trying to figure out not what to, not how we build the thing or what it should look like, but what we should build at all or whether we should build, whether, should build, whether, yeah. whether we should build, um, which is like, that's what's really exciting me working on that level with people and designing those solutions. That's, it's, you know, it's amazing. It's really, mm. really exciting. Have we still got time? Not really. No. Maybe maybe time for one more thing. And well, well I just I just want to go back to that 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 comment about that digital agencies won't exist anymore. Yeah. I mean, do you agree with that? No, I think that the only agencies that will exist will be digital, but they do need to evolve, and that's the very core of a digital agency. Like the grain of the internet, as it was famously put, is flux. Like that right. that is what the internet is. It's change, and the difference between a digital agency and like a, I don't know what, an analog agency? I don't know, <laughs> a non-digital agency. Yeah, a non-digital agency, yeah. I suppose, is one is accepting of and excited by change, who sees opportunity in the, in the midst of chaos, mm-hmm. who, who like is excited by and kind of almost needs that, that state of flux to exist, to be relevant. Mm. Um, you know, m- meaning that our business plan, the one you're looking at right there, absolutely takes into account that the services that we have on the table right now will probably either not exist or have evolved massively in 12 months from now. There's two ways to try and make money out of digital. One is to constantly evolve one and the other is to, um, you know, try and perfect. Mm-hmm. And, and we are very much in the constantly evolving um, space. We've, you know, I, I don't think that like if we had a menu for our services, it wouldn't have stayed the same for more than a year. Um, that being said, you've got to, you know, try and tread that fine line and obviously become an expert. Play, play, play your hits. Yeah, play the hits. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> well, I think on that note, last season, the last question that we had was from Julie Factor, which was, what can we do to ensure women have a place in senior design positions? White male Nick Gower. <laughs> I guess it presupposes, which is definitely true, that there isn't very many females in, in senior or leader positions in, in design yeah. and, and in digital, I suppose, as well. Um, well, I, I guess that's, that's probably the hardest question we really could have asked. Yeah, I know, because what's the reason for it? Are we all assholes? Because I hire people, I've hired heaps of girls. Up until just recently, um, oh, we're actually talking about this today, we've got five male designers right now, right. But up, which is obviously exactly the problem we're trying to solve, I suppose. But up until when we hired Johnny, um, our, like a year ago, our, our director, we were all, 
all girls like our whole design team was girls yeah they were uh, and you know they were amazing like no no better no worse they were they were they were great and they didn't like they left on their own accord like we didn't force them out you know like a couple guys moved or a couple of the girls moved overseas well they've all actually moved overseas now that i think about it um to one in amsterdam one to london another like one of the girls went to work in our london office i don't know like I think that people, from what I've had this discussion a couple of times with um, like various like females in um, in 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 like leadership positions in design, and they all definitely feel it. Like they all definitely feel like it was tough for them. Mm-hmm. So there is definitely something that we need to talk about, right? And I guess as you were saying, like the more we talk about it, the the more open we are about it. You know, hopefully the the less of an issue will, will, it sort of will become. The less the you know maybe subconscious biases as well as maybe some people's conscious biases mm. will will kind of um well the less chance they'll have to actually exercise those biases mm. i mean it's weird because surely when you're hiring designers and you know promoting designers it's on the quality of their work surely i mean and it should like so that it shouldn't be like this it should be 50 50 mm. do you have um putting you on the spot but do, do you have a question that we could potentially ask our next guest yeah yeah I do I've got a question um, I'm trying to think of the most like e- like the easiest way to word it is I think like we often in our like internal sessions talking about MF and where we're going and these things talk about this concept of like refining and perfecting versus um, evolving and changing and you know okay and you know we often look at you know other agencies which do something really specific and that's all they do like they've just become like a wordpress Mm -hmm. agency or whatever and there's this or you know they're just doing like this really specific type of enterprise thing which we think is boring or whatever and we've done before but and we'd be happy to do again but that's not all we want to do yeah and they've perfected that one thing and they do it over and over again and our we the thing we always come back to is but when as the internet moves they will become less relevant and then they'll disappear like some really specific flash house that no longer exists anymore so um i guess the question is like how do other people um like try and strike the balance between perfecting and refining what they do so they can give their clients value and be really really good at something yeah um and not have to waste time learning it um and evolving at the same pace the internet's evolving so that they can be relevant not necessarily you know in like in into the future light years are advanced but you know be relevant and be taking on all the beautiful new techniques the internet has to offer how do you balance those two things yeah cool brilliant question well i think on that note um we might wind things down a little bit thank you very much yeah um like to thank everyone for listening to australian design radio so um where can everyone find you guys matt where can people find you after the show um twitter um, and LinkedIn is probably the best way. Matt Leach, Leachworth. Yeah. Respectively? Respectively. <laughs> and Nick, what about you? Uh, Twitter is good and um, in real life, I guess. Yeah. Um, What's your address? <laughs> don't. don't <laughs> he did that before. Someone did. Nick MF. Yeah. yeah Nick on, MF. on everything, I think. Yeah, MF. Cool. Um, you can find me at flintracy.com and on everything at flintracy. You can find this episode and more at australiandesignradio.simplecast.fm and you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at AUS Design Radio. 
If you have any suggestions for topics, guests, or have questions you'd like us to ask on the show, we just want to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Um, you can email us at Matt or Flynn at AUSDesignRadio.com. Until then, thanks for listening. Take care. Thank you.